0: How do we do this? It's, yep. it's a discussion, so it's a yep, you've totally you drop in an actual conversation, organic. Like we yeah. don't it's have beautiful. notes
1: planned.
2: Welcome back to another episode of Raj Nation Innovation's Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, a.k.a. The Raj Nation. I am your show's host. I'm the founder of Raj Nation Innovation, a hip-hop artist and a yoga instructor. Above all else, I am a storyteller. I am joined by my co-host, Victoria Cohen. Victoria is the voice behind the blog, almondsandasana.com. She's also a yoga instructor and a community activist focused on making positive lifestyle choices to impact you and the people you serve. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help creative thinkers like you and I better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. In this episode, we sit down with Eric Severinghouse. Eric is a serial entrepreneur, an angel investor, and currently the chief strategy officer at Spring CM. As he likes to describe himself, he is always striving to be a man in the arena, filling the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. And let's run right into our topic today. And it is really something that every entrepreneur can identify with. And that is the question, how do you navigate the abyss? Before we dive into that conversation, I want to extend an invitation if you're not a member already, join our tribe by going to www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Enter your email address on the homepage, you'll get an email in your inbox with every episode we release each week, plus some cool stories that I share, and you will never be out of touch with the awesome. All right, let's dive in now to our conversation with Eric Severinghouse. How do you navigate the abyss?
0: Let's listen in. So... I think the concept of the abyss – so the idea of the abyss ultimately comes from a a famous writer and comparative mythologist by the name of Joseph Campbell. And he created this sort of construct for what he calls the monomyth. And he says that all of kind of the world's great traditions around mythology and religion – ultimately have a very similar structure, and this is the structure that George Lucas intentionally copied as he created Star Wars, and it ultimately bears out if you look at essentially any great movie or novel, all these other kinds of things. And the general concept behind it is that there's this idea of the hero's journey. So you have this protagonist who feels this call to do something greater than their current life, and and as a result of answering this call, they go off on this particular journey, and Generally, they meet mentors and advisors and a number of other people sort of along the way. But what inevitably happens as they begin down this, this, uh, this path is that they end up having a few trials and tribulations. They end up sort of overcoming those. They become stronger. And then ultimately, they meet kind of their, their ultimate dragon, their ultimate nemesis, their foe, the abyss. Um, what Ben Horowitz famously describes in his poem is the struggle. And it's this concept of this enduring, all-encompassing, essentially personal hell that you have to somehow figure out how to get through in order to emerge on the other side. And, And this happens in a variety of contexts and a variety of use cases. But what I think is very interesting from the perspective of a technology entrepreneur is the fact that we very rarely honestly address this concept of the abyss. Uh, So often in entrepreneurial literature, there's kind of two types of entrepreneurial literature. Uh, and, And I've read a million books on entrepreneurship. There's sort of type one, as I call it, which are very technocratic books that kind of talk about, hey, if you want to raise money, here are the five things you do. Here's how you structure your pitch deck. Here are the terms and conditions you should look for, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's type two, which is probably more common, which is, hey, I'm a famous entrepreneur. I've made hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Uh, I've ultimately, you know, absolutely killed it out in the world, and I'm going to go share my secrets of success with you. And what's fascinating to me about type two is that when you actually read the books, there's always this sort of challenging moment. There there has to be the conflict and the climax, but it almost feels like that's like, I I call it the Rocky montage. It's like that (laughs) sort of like moment in the middle uh, where it's like things are hard and the ultimate advice that's that's oftentimes given to entrepreneurs as you go through this is, oh, you know what? Just hang on. If you keep fighting away, things will get better. You're ultimately going to emerge unscathed with you know hundreds of millions <laughs> of dollars to your name and this massively successful exit. And the interesting thing about it is, if you look at the uh, if, if you look at the literature, am I allowed to say four-letter words here? Yes. If you look at the four, if you look at the literature, it's absolute bullshit. <laughs> Something in the order of 70 to 80% of companies fail, and they don't fail because the entrepreneurs are weak or because they just don't give up, you know, uh, as the advice suggests. It's actually a, a, an inc- a far more complicated phenomenon than that. But, but we reduce it into this idea that you just keep fighting through the abyss and you'll get there. And so this oftentimes ends in tragedy in a lot of ways for entrepreneurs, Um, Again, if you look at literature and research, you'll find that entrepreneurs are predisposed to things like depression, anxiety disorders, a variety of other mental disorders. Um, There's a a doctor by the name of Michael Friedman who's done a ton of research on this. But what so, so what's crazy is we take people who as a population are predisposed to these sorts of challenges. We then push them into some of the the hardest and most lonely professional situations imaginable. We give them very little support and ultimately our advice to them as a society is oftentimes reduced to just keep fighting harder and as long as you're strong enough, i.e. as long as you're not weak, you'll make it through and be successful. And then we become shocked when we find that entrepreneurs commit suicide at a far higher rate than the general population. Uh, again, that there's all kinds of other mental health problems that are associated with entrepreneurship and that bad experiences through entrepreneurship and, and that these risks when taken and when they're not properly addressed can ultimately derail careers and derail entire lives. Um, but, but I think that, that we don't talk honestly about that as a, as a cohort of entrepreneurs and, and as people who, who truly care about these things. And so um, that's something that, that I'm very passionate about. It's something that I've certainly experienced and gone through. It's something that any entrepreneur I've ever spoken to, if you ask them how things are going, they always say, great. And if you really look them in the eye, and if you go, well, that's awesome, man, because let me tell you, when I was three years in in your shoes, I, you know, I, my old joke is I was sleeping like a baby. I was waking up every hour at night crying, mm-hmm. right? And, and I can't tell you, I just had this conversation a week ago with somebody who looked at me and goes, oh, my God, you're absolutely right. And he just sort of like, people will just then lay out these challenges that they're going through. And they're like, God, I haven't been able to talk to any about, anybody about this for years. So I, I think it's an incredibly pressing and important challenge for us, um, particularly if we as a society continue to value entrepreneurship, and it's something that we need to do a better job about talking about honestly. This is a
2: fascinating setting of the table for this conversation. Mm-hmm. I can already tell this is going to be fruitful. So what you brought up is this concept that... I've also found uh, unique, or not unique, I've I've found it curious in the fact that, like, there's a lot of people who, after the fact, are willing to talk about the struggles, but after they've made their riches and talking about the struggles doesn't matter anymore, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: not many, very few, will talk about things as they are happening for fear of, how does that make me look? And I can tell you, with this particular podcast, this is season seven now we're doing, right? Um, so it's been going for two and a half years. Victoria just joined as co-host for this, uh, for this past season. Uh, but prior to that, this was a, largely a running diary of whatever I was going through and my previous co-host, whatever he was going through. Yeah. And people have liked us for that, for the fact that like, it's, it, they can relate to it. Now, at the same time, I have worried, am I saying too much? Am I sharing too much? Because there's a fine line there. And actually, I read an interesting article yesterday um, by Ramit Seti, who honestly I don't really love his stuff, but every now and then he writes something that is catches my eye. <laughs> um, and he was talking about how like he he some of this idea of like vulnerability that's been so played out now, and I and I've done a TEDx talk on vulnerability, and I even think at this point it's like, okay, we get it, <laughs> you know, because you've got like it's like vulnerability had this thing where it's like anything. That has happened in recent memory where it gets so popular to the point where everyone's talking about it. And then you're like, "Okay, I get it. Be vulnerable. Can we move on to the next thing? And I think it happened with like Brene Brown's TED Talk on vulnerability and everyone hopped on the train from there. But what this article was saying was that like there is there's vulnerability to the point of like just making people feel sorry for you because you're like, oh, this is a struggle oh, I can't get anything done because of this and that and oh, like nothing's going my way. But if you only ever share the struggle, then you, what you attract is people who also are pity party people. And, it's, and it was like what the article mentioned was you've got to match vulnerability with excellence. Because if you have excellence, you can be vulnerable. Because people will see that there's a, there's a positive outcome to this but if you're only if you're just that emotional wreck all the time and, you've, and I'm sure you all have like one Facebook friend you can think of who is just always complaining. <laughs> complaining. Or like yep. a couple. <laughs> yeah. Complaining. I like that. Or, or there's sure. a couple. Of them. Right. But then you might have another friend who's doing pretty well. But then every now and then will be like, this sucks. This happened to me. And you, all, you have more respect for that person and you look to them more as a leader than anything else so this is that that, that the, the timing of what you just said and me reading that article yesterday yeah. is, is interesting to me
1: yeah I and it's funny because so I left I worked for Pepsi for five years and I left last September and um, I teach yoga full-time I've started a blog I'm doing this podcast so I'm sort of like going down that journey right of sort of like discovering like what other things and like what what's this personal brand that I'm building. Discovering her
2: inner awesome. Yeah, I'm <laughs> discovering my
1: inner awesome, and I'm sure I'll face my abyss soon enough. But it's but it's really interesting because actually someone who is um, uh, sort of a mentor and manager and um, at Pepsi reached out to me literally earlier today on Instagram and was like, so happy for you. Like, looks like things are going amazing. Like, you're killing it, yada, yada, yada. Like, all this stuff. Like, things are looking so great. And I'm like, yeah, like, it's awesome. I'm really excited about everything I'm doing. But like... Definitely, there are totally different set of struggles and stresses, you know, that come along with it. But, you know, whatever went on from there. But um, but it is it is interesting that I think a lot of times from the outside, it is so easy to be like, well, it looks like you're killing it. I'm so glad you're going after your dream. And it's like, yeah, I feel really excited to be doing that. But there are a lot of other things that come yeah. along with it.
0: I had a board meeting at Simple Relevance. There's a million things I'd love to riff on on here. but mm-hmm. But just one quick anecdote to that point. I had a board meeting at Simple Relevance. The day of the Moxie Awards, I believe it was, probably two or three years ago.
2: M-O-X- uh, Moxie. Moxie, M-O-X-I-E. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah.
0: Built in Chicago's yeah. sort of entrepreneurial excellence awards here in uh, here in Chicago. Um, sorry, I just assume everybody in the world knows what the Moxie <laughs> well, Awards Well, no, are.
2: I was like, the way you said it, I was like, mock yeah, that's
0: So anyway, so it's, it's a series of awards that, you know, they give to the greatest entrepreneurs in different categories, whatever, right? And so... That morning, we had a board meeting, and I'm sweating bullets, praying to God that the board will extend me another bridge, which I I frankly didn't know if it was going to happen, and was about 70% convinced that I was going to be walking out of that meeting, basically telling everybody at the company that they needed to pack their things and go home (laughs) because I couldn't pay them anymore. Uh, I'd been bridging the company out of my own payroll or out of my own um, bank account. For longer than I frankly could and was relying on the board at that point um, and, and I wasn't sure if they were going to step up. And so we managed to get that bridge done by the skin of our teeth and literally that evening I'm standing on stage completely unexpectedly um, and end up winning this award for the best business-to-business startup in Chicago, all right? beating out some just phenomenally great companies. And what was really funny is, is I'm usually not at a loss for words. So people that know me know that usually I will ramble on forever. Um, and, and I got up and sort of got the award and went and just sat right back down and didn't even say a word. In fact, the photographer didn't even have time to take my picture. <laughs> while I was up there. They had to take it again later. Um, and, and what I couldn't tell anyone at the time, because you certainly couldn't do it in that scenario, but what, you know, it was such an utter shock to my system, this boomerang effect from like, I am this close skin of my teeth to literally telling everybody to go home and by the way, I am dead broke. Mm-hmm. And then a few hours later, I'm standing up on some award on some stage being called the best business to business entrepreneur in the entire city, right? And I'm sit- sitting here going, man, like the cognitive disconnect mm-hmm. just wanted to make my brain explode. Um, and, and so to your point, as I'm doing that, everybody in Chicago is congratulating me and like coming up and, and saying, oh, my goodness, like, oh, we always knew you'd make it huge, right? You're mm-hmm. killing it. And I'm sitting here going, are you kidding me? Like, I'm literally dodging bullets and like feeling them graze my temple as I go by. Um, but you can't say that, yeah. right? And so, so all you can say is, yeah, no, it's awesome. Hey, by the way, you got any money? Because I'm looking for investment right now. I need an Uber home. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, and so particularly as it relates to entrepreneurship, You end up in this very uh, sort of high profile situation where on the one hand, you're desperately trying to sort of tame your emotions and tame everything that's happening. And on the other hand, you're being hailed as this friggin' genius. And the imposter syndrome that sets in is just unbelievable Mm. because you look at all these people and it got to the point like you look at them with contempt and you're like, if you think that I'm really good, you clearly don't know shit because I am making this thing up as I go along. And it's something that we all go through and we all struggle with, but but I think in general, um, it's it's really hard to talk about and really hard to admit to.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, I, and I, that's where you know you mentioned earlier that you you'll talk to people who are like, oh, great, and you're like, oh, really? I that's fantastic because when I was in your shoes, all this shit was happening to me. More of those conversations need to happen, and and I think it it's really it's being honest with yourself, and this is something that I think. Whatever quote unquote success I have had to this point, I can attribute a lot of it to the fact that I've always just been very real with people, not to like the point of like, feel sorry for me or being abrasive or blunt, but more just like when someone asks me, whether it's in a business setting or not, when someone asks, how am I doing? I try to answer that. Actually, how am I doing? And I'll be like, you know, okay, like these things are going on. Some things are good. Or like, you know what? It's a shitty day. This happened. Or maybe things are really good. And I'll say that and i have found like like you found people will then open up like they are then not just going to say oh you know what i'm great too they're going to want to they they have something they can sympathize and empathize with as well
0: there there's a point that's been made twice now that that i guess i would dig into a little bit which is the idea of equating vulnerability or authenticity with complaining or whining or whatever mm-hmm. and and i guess to me um it is as miserable as the abyss can be and, and as frustrating as all of this is sometimes, <laughs> there's the, the juxtaposition I always try to remind myself of. And I got sucked into a sort of complaining and whining uh, Techstars thread or, uh, at one point, right? So so for those who don't know, Techstars is an entrepreneurial uh, incubation program. It's an accelerator. There's kind of two big ones in the country. One is Techstars, one is Y Combinator. So, so anybody who's in Techstars, you're typically, Somewhere between the top five and ten percent of your class. I think in ours we were actually there were a thousand applications and they took ten entrepreneurs. Right? Um, they took ten companies. So you're literally talking top one percent in order to get into this thing. So you've got the top, let's call it one to ten percent of entrepreneurs that actually get accepted into this. Right? Uh, never mind the fact that you got to be pretty far along to even apply. So you're really in the upper air just for getting into this program. And then there's this email thread going around, and it was a huge sort of like, what was me? Blah 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 blah. And I I was, I don't know, feeling snarky that day for whatever reason. And so, you know, I decided to respond. I think I responded. I don't think I hit delete. I can't exactly
2: remember. But I think (laughs) I
0: responded. Um, So we're just going to probably go find the thread and call me a liar. But I think I responded and said, um, you know, look, guys, can we all remember that at the end of the day, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like we're a bunch of really lucky people who get to go chase self-actualization and do this for a living. <laughs> right. And like most of us are highly employable and could probably be making upper five, if not six or seven figures going and getting a quote unquote real job, right? And yet we have consciously chosen, it ain't like we're trying to decide if we're going to the coal mill that day, you know, you go watch the documentary Harlan County and then come back and complain about how day, how hard the day was, right? Yeah. So, so it ain't like we're we're choosing between like death defying miserable manual labor and you know putting food on the table. Mm-hmm. We're choosing between you know what what we're all doing off chasing self actualization. And so it, it, there's an extent I think where I, and I'm a huge believer in in authenticity, vulnerability and, and being honest. Um it's it's something that's that's been very important to me throughout. But on the flip side, you know Dropping that into self-pity, man, that's not cool for anybody. And most cases, I think it, it belies a, uh, I don't know, a lack of perspective. Um, because at the end of the day, we're all really, really lucky. Although, yeah, there's plenty of problems in this earth and, you know, there's plenty of things that we'd all like to change. The people that sit around and do nothing but complain, I, I also have very little respect yeah.
2: for. We also, at the end of the day, for the most part, don't have to worry about if we can drink our tap water or not. That's exactly right.
0: Right? <laughs> Yep. Michigan notwithstanding, but absolutely right.
2: you're exactly right. You know, it's not uh, Jason Friedman who founded base camp um, He wrote an article on medium similar to this where he was like You don't do hard work, right? He was like your work might be challenging right. It might present problems that are interesting, but if it were hard people wouldn't want to do it Right like there wouldn't be a line of people willing to take your job if it exactly. were hard right. He's like the hard work is coal mining the hard work is being in a field those are the jobs people don't want, like picking literal grains of rice. Right. Those are the hard jobs. So and don't let's remember confuse the, yourself.
0: That's what work has been for the entirety of human history mm-hmm. up until about 100 years ago. Yeah. Or maybe 70 years ago, right? So we were fortunate enough to be born at the right time, mm-hmm. born in the right place, because, by the way, that's still what work is across most of the friggin' world, mm-hmm. right? And yet we get to go be knowledge workers and creative workers and all this other kind of stuff. So, so yeah, like, like... Like, the idea of being authentic and real, I, I think, is incredibly important, but people who just get so down on themselves that all they do is sit around, you know, bitch, whine and complain, um, I, I have absolutely, like, no desire for that kind of negativity in my life.
2: It's uh, many, many years ago, I heard it phrased as basement people, meaning they're in the basement, and they want you to hang out in the basement with them, Right. and they don't want you to go upstairs, Right. they just want to stay in the pity exactly of being right. down here in the basement.
0: And, and and I think it relates to this concept of the abyss, and and to me, it's one of the reasons why Campbell's framework is so important. Because what I didn't necessarily realize as an entrepreneur the last time that what, what I what I try to I guess bring a framework to in, in terms of thinking about it this way is this concept of the abyss is something that everybody goes through, so it's not unique to you as an entrepreneur. You're not in the abyss because you're dumb because you're lazy, because, you know, you're malfeasant, any of that. It's literally something that every entrepreneur goes to. And, and I can, you know, any of the guys around Chicago that have had nine or ten figure exits, man, or eight or whatever, you sit down and have a couple whiskeys nine with these figures, guys. man. It's a lot of zeros. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot of zeros, right? <laughs> and and it's, it's, you know, they will all, if they're being honest with you, they'll all tell you about that time through the abyss. Now, it is temporary because it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to emerge successful. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go, you know, that you're going to sell for a hundred million bucks, but, but at the end of the day, even if you do get to quote unquote failure, you know, Mm -hmm. in the worst case, the failure is closing down the company. Even if you do get to that point, you can ultimately then close that down as a chapter in your life and move on to the next thing, taking the learning experience and network. As long as you do things the right way, it can still be an incredibly valuable chapter in your life and in your career. Right. And so, so if you can contextualize this idea of like, I'm in the abyss But I'm not in the abyss necessarily because I'm an idiot, and I'm not in the abyss necessarily forever, but it's a phase that I have to learn through, that that I have to learn and go through and contextualize, and then eventually I'm going to come out the other end, as all heroes do throughout this hero's journey, as long as I don't completely give up. Um, I will come out the other end, and I will ultimately be stronger. I will be more knowledgeable. I'll have a more robust network. There will be... I, you know, I, from the the hottest fires, the best irons forged, right? Th- those sorts of ideas, and ultimately, having gone through that, that's the process that ends up building us. I think as people, that ends up building us as executives and all of that kind of thing.
2: There's another concept too that I like that I heard um, from Todd Connor at Bunker Labs. I don't know if you've met Todd. Yeah, before. of course. Uh, I may have mentioned it on this show. I probably did at one point. And I re- he 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 referred it. To entrepreneurship and I think it applies well beyond entrepreneurship but definitely in entrepreneurship and he didn't give it a name but since then I've called it the context funnel and what he said he drew a funnel on a whiteboard have I said this on an episode before? I don't think okay so. he drew a funnel on a whiteboard and at the top of the funnel he wrote so he's, he's like this funnel is the entrepreneurial journey at the top of the funnel he wrote us without context at the bottom of the funnel he wrote how the world actually works yep And he's like, all you're doing on this journey is just trying to get further down the funnel to figure out how does the world actually work? And and like, when I heard that, I was like, this is one of the most brilliant concepts I have ever heard of. And I'm gonna start using it, Todd.
0: (laughs) I, I love that idea. I, so I'm working on this book around a lot of these sorts of concepts. And yeah, I describe it as being on like the other side of a, of a two-way mirror or a one-way mirror, I forget which is which, but the one that you can see two through on one mirror, side. Two-way, yeah. 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 So, so if you're on <laughs> a one-way mirror, one just a, just a mirror. regular <laughs> mirror. Yeah. So, so two-way. So like if you're on the one side of it, you're looking at it, and all you kind of see is your reflection, right? You can't see what's on the other end, and yet, and, and, and it's it's amazing because if if you you know when you spend time with anybody who's a, like like as an entrepreneur, when you meet another entrepreneur who's gone through the cycle, you know, of raising money. Of building something, of ultimately exiting it, and then you know moving on to the next thing, and, and anybody's been through that cycle once or twice, um, it, there's there's like a different look in their eye, <laughs> there's a different um, it, th- there's sort of a different handshake that you give. It's not like a secret handshake, but there's like <laughs> there's a knowingness that sort of happens, uh, and, and it's I, I love that idea of the context funnel. But it's so fascinating to me. And this is what this is ultimately what I'm kind of trying to figure out how, to I, how do I capture and express is how do you get as much of that knowledge to people early so that they can learn it before they make the mistakes that destroy their business, mm-hmm. right? And so you can get as much of that context as early as possible so you can then make the best decisions you can.
1: And before they get to the point of feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm the only person who's ever going through this and give up on it.
0: Well, it's it, absolutely, and, and um, you know, one of the lessons that I learned, probably one of the most important lessons that I've learned through my journey was the importance of having a peer group of fellow entrepreneurs that you can speak, that you do speak with on a consistent basis on the grounds of absolute secrecy. And so there's different groups that facilitate this, there's YPO, there's Vistage, um, YEO, uh, we had our own group, um, so there was about 10 of us, and it was pat. It was, it was led by a great guy, a local entrepreneur and mentor, and-, and I think now VC here in Chicago by the name of Greg Kaplan, awesome guy. And he essentially volunteered, got no compensation, he pulled 10 entrepreneurs together, and we met every six weeks. And, and-, and the, gra- the-, the-, the only ground rules were, you had to show up, uh, you could only miss one session per year or you're out of the group, so we use that to maintain commitment, and no matter what happens, you cannot say anything that happens in that group to your significant others, your best friends, your VCs, anybody in your life. What happens in there stays absolutely in there, all right? And like I a fight club. Okay, a little bit, a little bit. Um, I didn't really want to do it because I thought it was kind of silly. The only reason that I did it, and I thought it was too busy. I thought it was too cool. And the only reason I did it is because I had a great respect for Greg Kaplan's reputation. I didn't really know him as a person, but I had great respect for Greg Kaplan's reputation. And I said, all right, if I can invest some time to get to know Greg, that's worth it no matter what. All right. And so I started doing it. And what I found was I actually ended up, I think, getting more out of it than anybody else did.
2: Um, <laughs> that's usually the case. Yeah. The person that's, who's most resistant that's exactly has right. a breakthrough and that's exactly right.
0: becomes the uh, valedictorian. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened. And, um, and, and it was within the context of, of being able to contextualize my struggle with everybody else's. Cause you walk in and you'd be like, man, like my life could not be shittier than it is right now. And then you sit down you look across the table and somebody would say, so my wife just left me. My dad just had a heart attack. And by the way, our VCs declined to pick up their pro rata. And so I'm not going to be able to raise around. And you're sitting here going, shit, man, my life ain't so bad. <laughs> but, I'd hate to be you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and it was, it was absolutely fascinating. And, and what it, it led me to this realization. I've since done a whole bunch of research around this idea of loneliness and entrepreneurship, and, and what I so so I, I've known a few guys who've been in the military and special forces and, and other things like that. Like real stress, low end of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? These guys are literally trying to stay alive while they're out in the field. They are doing the hardest friggin' jobs imaginable, right? The most stressful things imaginable, and and what I've heard in some cases from these people is actually entrepreneurship can be more, can involve more strain sometimes. And, and I, I had a number of these different conversations. Actually, this would be a fascinating conversation to have with Todd at some point, yeah. um, just because of his network. Um, and it's not yeah, one that- his
2: prior military. Yeah, it was
0: exactly right. It's not one that I ever have. But, um, but, but what you start to realize is that, that a lot of those people have the hardest struggles actually when they get out of the war zone. Because when they're in the war zone, they, they and, and there's a whole bunch of, of human psychology research that gets into the importance of essentially being in shared environments with with other people going through the same thing. And so when these people are in a war zone, um, you know, these heroes are off serving in, in, in this war zone. They ultimately are surrounded by their comrades in arms, their brothers who are going through and sharing that exact same experience. And so they are able to essentially be there for each other as a support network in a way that they can contextualize their struggle through that of other people. Right. And, and ultimately, a lot of times when they end up struggling the most is when they come back to the United States and they look around and they see, oh, man, like my friends, my family, none of these people actually understand what I went through. And, and I think in a lot of cases we force those sorts of strains onto entrepreneurs. And, and I am by no means saying that being an entrepreneur is more difficult than going off and being in a war zone. So let me make sure that, that nobody would ever read anything like that. All right. That's what I do is type on a computer. It's not getting shot at or, or, you know, risk having my legs blown off. So it's a totally different thing. That being said, there is an element of the psychological strain that we impose upon entrepreneurs. And then we do not give them or they, they oftentimes do not have that type of a support network that can allow them to contextualize their understanding. Even if they're going out for drinks with other entrepreneurs, you can't really say, shit man i think we're in a lot of trouble because you know that that guy might tell the guy on his board Mm -hmm. and that guy might tell his partner at the vc firm and that means that you might not get that round raised Mm -hmm. and so your duty in a lot of cases is to maintain this facade and really if you're doing your job well you kind of have to partially lie to the world a completely authentic entrepreneur I think in a lot of cases reduces their ultimate chance of success. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a middle ground in there somewhere. It's also, you also don't want to be the bullshitter that you know, everybody sees right through. Um, but, but somewhere in there you do sort of have to create your own success by continuing to tell your story and, and having the optimism and some of that kind of stuff. And so uh, it, it's, it's one of the biggest things that I advise entrepreneurs all the time is find some sort of a structured peer group with, with, with whom you can be completely honest. Mm-hmm. And use that to sort of ease your struggles, um, because I, I think it's incredibly important. Let's pause 60 seconds for this public service announcement
2: for you startup founders out there listening. The Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast is brought to you by Raj Nation Innovation. If you are not familiar yet with Raj Nation Innovation, let me tell you real quick. I talk to founders pretty much every day who flat out tell me, Raj, we suck at telling our story. Well, my job is to remove the suck. With Raj Nation Innovation, I blend a unique background in both branding and songwriting because as I'm sure you know, if you've been listening to this show, I am also a hip hop artist. And so I look at business communication through the lens of entertainment and performance. And with that approach, I partner with growth-focused startups to help them develop their pitch, their story, and their message so they can go raise investor capital and acquire their early customers. Companies like Fanfood, Keo, Jiffy Rides, Muses, and more have all gone through my signature brand communication playbook and come out on the other side winning pitch competitions, raising seed funding, and being masters of telling their story. Holler at me at www.RajNationInnovation.com. That's R-A-J Nation Innovation.com. Back now to the show. What you're describing here is this concept uh, which I've been teaching to entrepreneurs for several years now. It's the idea of mastermind groups and it's pretty prevalent in the solo entrepreneur space. Not so much in the traditional, not traditional, not so much in the startup space. Uh, Basically, the idea is, as you said, basically having this accountability group and this um, its like accountability and honesty. You have regular meetings with one another, whether that's six weeks, once a month, every two weeks, whatever cadence you decide. And you structure it how you need to. But the idea is you have a group you can go to and say, here are my goals. Did I meet them or not? and they can hold you accountable to those goals. Here's what I'm struggling with. How can you help? Like, I need your help. Like, what can you tell me? And it might just be like having people tell you you're not crazy, because sometimes you need that. Um, And I know I have in my past. I needed people to tell me I'm not crazy. And every successful example I've studied over the years has employed this in some way, whether it's a small group or a partnership. Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. They didn't just happen to meet on stage hosting the MAs one day. They were both comedians in Chicago, doing improv, trying to make it. And they'd go to each other's shows, and they'd provide feedback on each other's shows, and say, hey, this, is, this worked for me, why don't you try that? Or don't do that, it didn't really work for me. And they'd work on improving their craft together, even though they're independent artists. At some point, they can collaborate, too, but they're independently doing their thing, but helping each other. Um... Ben Franklin had a group called the Junto, which was essentially like America's first mastermind in that they would think about the problems of early America together, and they actually created the first (laughs) library in America as a result. Um, Independent thinkers who ended up coming together to create something, which I think can happen modern day too, where maybe it's like, hey, you're a partner. I can pull in on this thing our company needs. My favorite example, though, is with... um, the French Impressionist artists of the 1800s. This is where I first learned of this concept. So you had, you're familiar with like, Impressionism, like the mm-hmm. dots, right? That, what is that, day at the park with the mm-hmm. woman with the umbrella, yeah. right? Yep. Um, and then you've got like water lilies and a bridge, mm-hmm. right? So you had Monet, Manet, Cezanne, Renoir, 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 mm-hmm. Renoir. Don't look at me. Pizarro and Degas. Okay, you've got these six guys. And in France at this time, impressionism is not yet art. What is considered art is lifelike paintings, primarily of royalty and for some reason dogs, but I think royal dogs. <laughs> <laughs> royal lapdogs. <laughs> so that's what that's what the standard is for art at the time. And every year in France, in Paris, there is this art gallery, this art show called The Salon and there's this panel of judges who decides, I mean, almost like tech stars, like, only the top applicants can get into this show and have their work seen. Now, it's a pretty decent pool because there's a lot of art that gets seen and actually, like, they're hanging it like floor to ceiling so, like, the better stuff gets at eye level, the worse stuff is higher up. Sure. And, but this was, like, the litmus test for art of the time and this was the you're either in or you're out. And if you're out, your work probably doesn't mean anything to anyone. So you had all these applicants every year and only the, you know, let's say the top 1% get accepted and have their art shown at this salon. And if you're accepted, you're, you're considered like an artist. You're considered artistic royalty. And if you're not accepted, very similar to what you mentioned with the entrepreneur route, there were artists who actually committed suicide because they said, Mike, I have no career if I can't get into this show. So you have, all these, you have these artists who are giving up, who are committing suicide, who are saying, I'm not worth anything if they're not getting in. You know, now you've got these impressionists who are getting rejected a few years over because they're, what they're doing is not considered art. It's dots on a page with color schemas. But what do they do? Every day they go to this cafe, which still exists to my knowledge, Cafe Girbot or Girbault, and... I think I have that right, and they continue to sketch and they work on their sketches and they critique each other's sketches and they talk about their struggles, even to the point where like when whoever was like Monet couldn't afford a cup of coffee, Manet was like, here, I'll give you the whatever, the two francs or whatever it was to, to buy this cup of coffee. And they would have each other as this support system where they could give each other feedback on their drawings and make it through this struggle together. And ultimately, they ended up saying, okay, we keep getting rejected. How do we get into the show? How do we get into the show? And then over time, because they had this group they could talk to, this mastermind partnership, relationship, they realized, you know what? Maybe it's not about getting into the show. Maybe we just need to find a way to have our work seen. What if we threw our own art show? And that's what they did. And the the salon show was, like, expensive to get into. Only the rich and wealthy were able to see it. This one, they charged one franc. This was pre-euro, obviously. They charged one franc to get in. Tons of people see the work. And they let other artists get involved in it as well. And when you look at that versus the alternative was literally suicide for a lot of artists. They had this support system, this mastermind relationship. And the output was those paintings, the day in the park, whatever it's called, the water lilies in a bridge. It's like a measly what 20 billion dollars valued at now right sure. and that's that's what's so powerful in having a group you can trust
1: yeah yeah well at, at pepsi we had these like mentoring circles so you you know could kind of sign up and they'd put you in a group of other people that were like in similar roles or in similar levels and there was kind of like one person who would facilitate and it was a similar thing like we met once a month once every other month and it was like you can kind of talk about anything, like, no, you know, because, we all, you know, it's, I mean, it's a big company, but it was small enough that, like, you know, we, we knew who each other worked for and all that sort of thing. And that, that was really nice. It was nice to be able to hear other people, you know, with the same struggles or the same issues or the same questions. And I would say definitely over the last, like, six, eight, nine months that I've kind of, like, gone off and doing stuff on my own, I have a lot of moments where I'm like, oh, my God, is this normal? Like, do other people feel this way, too? And I've recently joined a few, like, you know, blogger groups and this sort of thing. And it's, really really helpful just you know even like being a part of some of these groups where there's like you know we have a Facebook group and people are asking certain questions I'm like oh okay so other people are wondering that too or you know other people are dealing with the same issue um and it's hard when you like enter a totally new space and a totally new um career or journey and you just have no idea if other people are facing the same issues and it it's really helpful so that's that's something I'm looking for more of
0: yeah Yeah, one of the one of the the strong things that things that I strongly advise any, any person, any employee, um, particularly founders, but, but this really goes for any employee, is to have what I call a personal board of directors. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I have two friends from undergrad, uh, you know, one's a, a, an executive at Cisco and one's a fellow entrepreneur. And we meet regularly, we sort of share plans, we hold each other accountable, so, so, you know, we, we bounce questions, ideas, struggles off of one another, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's the guys that you can literally call at 2 o'clock in the morning and they answer their phone, you know, and they say, what's going on and how can I help? And uh, but, but we, we keep it. It's not just friends hanging out. It is literally uh, we schedule structured board of directors meetings mm-hmm. where we will, you know, go through with each of us um, to essentially hold ourselves accountable and to support each other as we go through our career. And it's something that I strongly advise everybody who's out there in in any professional setting is figure out the structure that works for you, uh, but develop a personal board of directors and and mentors outside of the company you work for. Mentors inside that company are great. They're oftentimes very transactional uh, and, and their interests oftentimes are marginally aligned with yours, but largely aligned with that of the organization. Uh, having one, two, three, a small number of people that you trust outside of the organization that can help develop you and that you maintain a consistent sort of longitudinal relationship with, I think can be absolutely transformative in terms of giving you perspective that you don't see from inside, you know, from inside the place where you're sitting. Mm
2: -hmm. I want to come back to the point you made earlier about like knowing contextually, like your struggle versus someone else's, right? Like you use like the war analogy or not the war not the analogy, but the idea of like, you know, like my combat is not as bad as their combat, but there's still combats in play. So last probably like at this time last year, maybe like 1 year and 2 weeks ago, I was at probably like my lowest of lows in the sense that um I was on the verge of shutting down my business, which was the, you know, like the first business I i only been doing. I mean, I worked somewhere after college, and then did this, and everyone thinks, you know, you, you, you never you're you're like kind of aware, like, yeah, I know nine out of ten businesses fail, but like that's not going to be me, right? You know, like totally. and you you kind of have to have that attitude about sure. it, right? Um, so we the old Han Solo quote: "Don't ever tell me the odds." Yeah, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. So, two George Lucas references. There you go. There you go. (laughs) You've met your quota. (laughs) So, I was on the verge of shutting down that business, which was called Idea Lemon. Um, No idea what was next, because that was like, you know, you kind of put all your mental energy into that thing. Um, Struggling with like, you know, I'm also a rapper, so it's like, okay, what can I do with that talent? And then had just received, along with Victoria, certification to teach yoga. However, I had just had knee surgery and was had a, a brace on my leg from my hip to my ankle. Couldn't bend my knee or anything and had to like wear a bag over my leg to shower, that kind of stuff. And I couldn't I was housebound for like a week. Um, it was terrible. And I'll tell you, like in in those moments where you actually specifically because of the physical injury, too. And I don't know if you've ever like broken a bone or you actually like feel trapped in your own body. And it's like it's terrible, and so that was like probably like I was at like my lowest of lows. And then I read Phil Knight's book, which had just come out, Shoe Dog. Have you read it? I have not. Have you read I don't
1: it? No, we've talked about
2: it. Before. I think every single entrepreneur, or person who aspires to be an entrepreneur or in some way considers themselves entrepreneurial, should read this book, because sorry, that 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 put it into perspective for me. I mean, like. I think it took like three days to finish the book. And it was, it's one of those, it's, it's a page turner to where like, you're like, you know, I'm going to go to bed. But then, no, wait, you end up, it's like an hour late. It's like instead of binge watching Netflix, it's like you're binge reading a book, which doesn't happen very often, mm-hmm. I feel like. Occasionally. And it's got really to right? right? be a really good book, though, right? Right. It's got to be a really good book, like Harry Potter when I was like 10. <laughs> and, anyways, I, I, I read this book. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, holy crap. I think what I'm going through is bad. I haven't had to face the U.S. government coming after me try, because my competitor, Adidas, is, is trying to put me out of business by some tariff loophole. I haven't had an entire public relations nightmare because everyone thinks I run sweatshops out of China, or yeah, out of China or whatever, not realizing that the conditions that we created were far better than what they had. And even though they only make X dollars, and you want them to make more because you consider that unfair. You have to realize how much it would topple their economy if the, if the factory worker made more than the doctor. And I'm like, like these are the things that I'm like, holy crap. And, and to see how he, he comes out of it and he climbs out of it. And, as, and he started as just this, he says, like, I was a kid with an idea. Like, I was 22 years old. I had just traveled the world. And I, I wanted, I saw that they were making better shoes in Japan. And I wanted to just import them to the U.S. for athletes. And how that how it ballooned from there and every every step of the way where he for the first 10 years of Nike, which it also wasn't even called Nike for the first like nine years. It was called Blue Ribbon Sports. And they I think when they had to make a legal decision, they just they were like, fuck it, let's just go with Nike. (laughs) It wasn't even like a thoughtful process. Uh, So. For the first nine or 10 years, he didn't know if he was going to be able to keep the lights on the next day. And for the first five or six years, he was working a day job at Price Waterhouse Cooper in accounting just so he could make Nike work. And he was operating out of his parents' basement for the first four or five years. And that's where, you know, that perspective idea, the contextual struggle, that's where I, I was like, holy crap, I'm not nearly this. Like, I think I can dig out. of this. And, you know, it took a few months and ultimately I'm at a much better place now than it was a year ago, which I'm happy about. Um, but that's the type of stuff that, as where I say, every entrepreneur, aspiring entrepreneur, should read it because it literally, like, it puts you in the, in the mindset of like, holy crap! Like as you're reading it, you're like, how's he going to make it? And you know this how the story's going to end because you know Nike mm-hmm. exists. But even as that, you're like, yeah, and oh you, my God. and you start to see yourself in it yeah. and realize, you know, what's my situation versus that. For
0: me, and, and this one's a lot sillier. It's a lot cornier. Yeah. Um. But but, uh, the the. I, I've rewatched the movie The Pursuit of Happiness oh, probably so more good. times than imaginable <laughs> because that that scene with with, uh, you know, Chris Gardner, you know, where it's not only him about to fail, but, but he's literally like in the public bathroom with his son. Right. Yeah. And, and he's essentially destroyed. Uh, you know, he, he fears he's destroyed his son. He's destroyed his marriage. Right. And, and that continued belief in himself, despite the utter insanity of what he continues to go through. Um, That's always kind of been a contextualizing example for me. And whenever I catch myself feeling sorry for myself, I've I've tossed that DVD and I found it to be helpful. The the other key thing for me is my mom actually sent me um, a couple of my favorite kind of poems on these wooden things that I have in my office. And it's sort of like scrawled into them. And uh, so one is The Man in the Arena, the famous quote by Teddy Roosevelt. And then the other one is If by Rudyard Kipling. And there were periods where I was sort of, you know, just trudging through and, and not sure how the hell I was going to make it. And, and I would read if on a daily basis and just remind myself. So I'd read the man in the arena and remind myself, hey, it's not the critic who counts. It's the man who's in the arena. And then uh, and then if was always, can I fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run? So I don't necessarily I need to make it through the day. I'm trying to make it through the hour. Can I make it through the next fucking minute? <laughs> and if I can do that, then I can do one more minute, and I can do one more minute. Um, and, and if I do that, then, hey, I've gotten to the end of this day, and then I'll go to sleep, and I'll somehow figure out how the hell I'm going to make it through the next one, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and and so I, I think having those totems, those, those things that you can latch onto, whatever story it is that resonates with you, whatever sort of words of ancient wisdom, you know, whether it's bible stories, whether it's poems, whether it's Dr. Seuss books, whatever it might be, those things that are ultimately sort of near and dear to your heart, I think are absolutely critical to try and cultivate and surround yourself with because again, it can it can help keep you grounded when you desperately want to just like spin off into space.
1: Yeah. I feel like for me, just that the phrase this too shall pass yeah. is like something that and this is like Not – so I had cancer when I was in middle school, and I had chemo for six months, and I'm totally fine. But – um, and, like, we had a school counselor, and I would, like, go to her every day, and she would do these, like, meditation things while I was going through treatment. And that was, like, her big thing. It was always, like, this too shall pass, this too shall pass. And it's something that, you know, I mean, I I definitely – I'm an anxious person, and I still totally experience anxiousness over ridiculous things in life. But – When there are big things happening, that's kind of always the first thing that I think of is that like at some point in my life, this will not be a thing anymore. It will be something that's in the past and it won't, it will not be, it will not be the number one thing happening in my life. And it won't be the thing that I'm stressing about or that I'm whatever, you know, it just, it won't be the thing anymore. Um, And I think that's just, that's helpful. Let's transition
2: your and talk about spring CM for a few minutes so at this point it's been it's been the Eric Severinghouse show <laughs> let's let's put your company spring CM on a platform where your're chief strategy officer so at surface level spring CM while winning a moxie award <laughs> <laughs> is a about technology around automating business processes uh, let our listeners know why it's about more than just technology and business processes
0: yeah absolutely so so uh, you know after I sold simple relevance like kind of went off and, and was planning on doing kind of early retirement work, working on getting this book published and, um, and, and, you know, ultimately just skiing and climbing mountains and having a good time. <laughs> and a, a good friend of mine was just getting ready to take over as the CEO of spring CM. And so he called me up and asked me if I was interested in, in thinking about a job. And I said, no, thanks man. I'm going skiing and writing a book. Like I'm good. And then he, he we sat down and he talked to me about what we're building at spring and, um, and ultimately what it comes down to is it's a, it's a platform that I've frankly wanted to build for 15 years since I was at IBM. And it's this idea that one of the most miserable, one of the most anxiety-inducing and miserable experiences that's happening for knowledge workers day-to-day now is literally trying to get workflow done, your day-to-day workflow through email. And it's, it's, it gets to the point that many of us dread opening our email because it's like, oh Jesus, what are all the things I have to do, right? Um, and, and I remember going back to my days at IBM, it was absolutely miserable to me to try and get documents, you know, approved by different people through different workflows, ultimately signed off and then to a client. There was a lot that I loved about my job at IBM. The thing that I ultimately hated was this just miserable minutia of trying to shove documents through workflow processes and trying to like send emails, follow up. The process sucked. And it was like probably 20% of my job, but it was a 20% of my job that sucked 80% of my energy because I just hated it. And so the the mission of Spring is all about building, allowing enterprises to build automation processes within our web-based platform that allows for documents to be processed in different ways. So that can be getting contracts through approval processes. So you get revenue in faster. It can be, you know, moving grant applications through grant processes so that ultimately you can get money out to uh, uh, you can get money out to recipients faster. Um, When you think of all the different things that happen where essentially we need to move documents through workflow processes, Spring has a very easy to use platform that enables that. And so this excites me because I love real technology innovation. I've never gotten as much into like consumer apps and stuff like that. I love business to business like technology. And to me, what's really neat about spring is is it kind of has this multiplicative effect on our clients where if we can save all these different people, you know, with our clients hours of the parts of their job that they hate, allow them to spend more time, be more effective, more efficient, all these other sorts of things. You know, these are things that ultimately enable them to spend more time on the stuff that matters. And so um, I've never had more fun professionally than I've been having over the last four months since I joined here. Um, And and a lot of that is because I love the culture of what's here. I love the team that's here and all that kind of thing. But I also love the mission of what we're doing, which is really using technology to enable the parts of people's jobs that they hate. Well, enable the parts that they love, right? Enable the parts that they love. Yes. Excuse me. Yes. Remove the parts <laughs> that they hate. That's exactly right. Thank you. Thank you. That was a bad misstep.
1: I, I, only, I only was totally laughing at that because my husband works for IBM. Okay. And um, I see firsthand. Yeah. Exactly what you're
0: talking about. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: but, and I worked at Pepsi, and I, I mean... Same thing. I know exactly how that works.
0: Yeah. And so what's fascinating, for instance, Accenture is one of our largest clients. And uh, Accenture has this exact same problem, right? They've got tons of consultants. They're trying to figure out how do they get contracts through an internal process. Everybody hates email these days. And the problem is if the business process is being moved through email, you have no analytics, you have no tracking, you have no visibility, you have no way to consistently apply rigor to improving that process month after month, year after year. and so. and and so, you know, the status quo is is pretty miserable in a lot of places, um, and, and where we can use a platform to, again, bring it all inside of a platform, get it outside of email, apply security to it, apply structure, apply organization, and ultimately make it much easier for these people to go through these processes. You know, it makes their job more fun, it makes them ultimately a lot more productive, it makes the world more secure, so there's a whole lot of second and third order effects that ultimately come from the platform we're building, which is really neat. Awesome. I, let me ask you, what, what
2: was it inside you that said, you know what, I've built and sold a company, I could spend all this time writing, traveling, skiing, hiking, but you know what, I'm going to choose to make it hard on myself again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so I will give another plug to an organization called Hive, which was started by a good friend of mine, uh, Ryan Alice who... Um, oh, constant contact? Yeah, uh, in telecontact. Oh, in Eye tele- contact. contact. Yeah, it okay. was in telecontact when I was there with him. So okay. he, and then, so I was talking about this board of directors. There's another buddy of mine, Aaron Houghton. Aaron and Ryan really started what became Eye Contact. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to help them as kind of a co-founder and employee number one. Um, so Ryan is, is running this organization called Hive out in uh, California. It's a combination of California and Boston. And it's all about helping uh, global and, and millennial leaders um, really, I guess, kind of discover they're and are awesome in some ways sure. and, and really get in touch with who they are and, and figure out how can they have more of an impact on the world. And so I was fortunate enough to be invited by Ryan to go attend uh, last December. And I went out there and one of the exercises that we went through is we spent a lot of time. Essentially, you can think of a, a Venn diagram and you can go to Hive.org resources for all kinds of information on this stuff if you're interested. But we created a Venn diagram, which was a combination of what are you good at? What do people tell you good at? What do you think you're good at? what do you enjoy doing and what creates good for the world? Hmm. And the idea was if you can figure out a mission statement that sort of sits in the middle of those three of those three circles in the center of that Venn diagram, then if you can align your life behind that mission, it becomes a lot more powerful. And so what came out of that for me was this mission statement of, I want to enable others to innovate. I want to expand the palette of humanity. So I want to help move humanity forward by enabling others to innovate Uh, to do so more effectively and to ensure that those innovations reach their transformative potential. This is a kind of long-winded way of saying that I really value innovation and I want to have as big of an impact on innovation in the world as possible. And ultimately, there's a number of activities that align behind that mission statement. So it could be speaking, like this is something where if I'm doing a speaking gig, it's, well, does this align behind the mission statement? Well, spending time here, maybe helping entrepreneurs go through the abyss, Like that's something I feel like aligns to the mission statement. Um, writing a book about entrepreneurship, I felt like aligned to the mission statement, consulting, investing, some of the other things that I do where I focus on it from an innovation perspective, it aligns into that mission. What was interesting is when I sat down with Dan and he was explaining to me, so Dan Degan, CEO of Spring CM now, and he was explaining to me what we wanted to build with Spring, the money that we were raising, and the ultimate goal to build a transformative technology platform here in Chicago. So what Salesforce has done for relational data with CRM we wanna do with documents and with document workflows. And the goal of building that with a headquarters here in Chicago um, and and really enabling the innovation both internally and with our clients, I I felt like, and then particularly with my role being chief strategy officer, driving new innovative use cases that we wanna go to market with. All of these things sort of came together in a way where I said, well, I've got an opportunity for huge personal development. There's a lot that I can learn by doing this. And I feel like my activities and the company all aligns behind that mission. And when I realized all of that, it was really a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. And it was really neat then to have that sort of clarity of purpose and be able to use that lens to evaluate the opportunity to ultimately come back and say, yes, this aligns. This is something that excites me. And, and what I can tell you is, while I have challenging days, um, I've never had more fun than I'm having right now. And there's literally not been a day that I've regretted quitting, you know, stopping doing what is my favorite activity in the world, snow skiing, um in order to come back and, and come back to work because i feel like the activities are aligned with my purpose and so it's something that i'm really really enjoying awesome That's super
2: cool where can our listeners find SpringCM as well as get in touch with you
0: yeah so SpringCM.com. uh super easy uh take a look at it uh getting in touch with me is also pretty easy it's eric e-r-i-k at severinghouse.com uh s-e-v-e-r-i-n-g-h-a-u-s and feel free to shoot me an email
2: All right, so then to wrap up, let's give our respective answers. to the. I really like how this conversation unfolded. So we'll start with Victoria, and we'll go to me and then to Eric. Uh, The question was, how do you navigate the abyss?
1: I think, based on this conversation, um, navigating the abyss kind of comes back to that mantra that I really like of this too shall pass. And so just knowing that when you hit that abyss or you hit that challenge, you hit that demon, whatever it is that's coming up against you, knowing that... At some point, it will pass, whether that means that you fail or you succeed, um, that you will make it through to the other side. Um, I think that's how you get
0: through it.
2: My answer for how do you navigate the abyss is probably going to be a little bit lengthy, but uh, it's, 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 I think it's three different things that I've used anyway. Uh, one is my prevailing thought through everything for the last four-ish years, ever since I found like my own personal why, is... Am I fulfilling that why in a way that I'm happy with? Yes or no? And I've always like let that lead. Like, What am I doing next? Like, Stuff I'm doing now, I'm, I help startups with their messaging so they can sell and so they can raise capital. And I looked at it in terms of like, it wasn't like I have to do this as an entrepreneur. I mean, I have that like blood in me to be an entrepreneur. But I was like, I, first I looked at, is anyone else doing this in a way that I think is good enough? And... I didn't feel like it was out there in a way that was in a way that I would like be up to par or I was up to par with how I felt I could do it. So I said, okay, you know what? The best route for me forward, even though I just had to shut down a business is to start another business, even though it's not going to be financially great for a little while. That's my best route forward. Cause I'm ultimately just going to get frustrated and be unhappy if I try and go work somewhere else. Um, so that's part of it. The other part, or there's two other parts, which is knowing that it, in navigating the abyss it is okay to quit like it's not one of my the biggest things I was worried about when we shut down ideal lemon I mean, last year was oh god how are people gonna view me now and what I quickly learned was everyone was like and I had conversations with with certain people like before because I was like what I asked, I asked them I was like you know if we shut this down like what would your they're like dude We've known you this whole time. It's not like you ceased to exist. Right. This was a thing that you've been doing. Right. You don't lose any of the knowledge just because the business didn't work, and everyone's business doesn't work, so don't worry. Right. So it is OK to quit if it's just not working. Mm-hmm. Um, and then part of that would be the fact that I think if we all treat more things this is like the music side of me coming out if we, if we all treat more things, like musicians treat music, you make albums, right? right. The company, your first company, was an album that you put out, and then you were done with the album, and you moved on, and then you had another like mixtape in between of skiing and writing. You finished the mixtape. Spring CM is another album. At some point, you will move on from it and start a new album after that. And I think it that that album mindset allows us to put our all into something while not attaching it so closely to our identity and to our like. And obviously, like you want your album to be to sound good and everything, but you know if another album is on the way later on, you're not going to get so lost in that abyss right now.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, the other common metaphor for the abyss is the dragon, and those are kind of the, the, that's the other thing that Joseph Campbell talks about a lot. And, and so, if I use the dragon analogy for a moment, the only way to really, when you think about, ultimately, you want to cage the dragon, right, or slay the dragon. But let's let's take cage for the moment, and it's really to contain it to not allow it to become all encompassing. And it goes back to this idea of the only way to contain it is to contextualize it. It's, it's to truly understand, um, you know, and one way to contextualize it is to consider it an album, right? One way to contextualize it is to talk with people whom you trust, who can help contextualize it with their struggles. Another way to contextualize it is through reading, uh, you know, something like shoe dog or watching a movie like the pursuit of happiness or, Um, You know, reading, uh, whatever, you know, saying this shall pass. Right. But ultimately, um, finding whatever it is that resonates with you and and the one or the multiple things um, that allows you to contextualize and thus contain that dragon. So it doesn't grow into something that completely encompasses your life. You realize that it's a portion of your life. It's not your existence. Kind of going back to your point, Rajiv. Um, uh, you know to me that is the critical thing and there's a variety of different tools there's different armor that you can put on in order to try and affect that um, but but ultimately you have to find your own personal way of being able to effect, uh, to effectively contain that
2: and if nothing else works keep listening to the Discovery in our Awesome Podcast where <laughs> we are navigating the abyss with different guests every single week <laughs> <laughs> Eric Severinghouse thank you for joining us this was and enlightening. Awesome,
0: thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: That wrapped up our conversation with Eric Sebringhaus. Eric, thank you so much for joining us and, as I said, enlightening all of us with your knowledge and helping each one of us better navigate the abyss. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the best compliment you can give us is a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews help more people find the show. Therefore, more people get to discover their inner awesome. While you're leaving that review, go ahead and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you listen, whether that is iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or the various other podcasting platforms in which you can find this show. For full show notes, references, and resources, though, you can head over to www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. We've got a full episode page there, plus Eric's contact information as well. That'll do it for this one. Thank you again to Eric Severinghouse for joining us. Season 8 continues on next week. For Victoria Cohen, I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today. come to see me? in love, but ain't My baby's sweet. I mean, she's sweeter than all Won't you come and see me, I won't Won't you you never Never